This is Brain on Nature, a podcast about how going out into the natural world changed my brain. I'm Sarah Allerley. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, it'll make sense if you go back to the start. This is episode two. This injuries made me reflect on what the load on my brain was like before the accident. It's a few weeks before my bike crash. I'm on the train going into the city to find my daughter some shoes. I'm on my phone, checking my emails, searching for which shop to head to. My kids are fighting for my attention. We get off at Town Hall in the centre of Sydney. It's Friday afternoon, so it's mayhem. We take forever to find the right shop. You don't need to have had a brain injury like me for this to be relevant. The trauma of my accident can teach us all something about our lives. With the smartphones, we're, we carry in our pocket a little digital computer that connects us to pretty much everybody on the planet. And you can connect 24-7. So you're now constantly multitasking and trying to do all kinds, juggling all kinds of things. And that tends to deplete uh, the, the, the reserve, the mental reserve, probably some of the uh, glycogen and glucose supplies in the prefrontal cortex that make the brain work. So even though it seems to be something we think is we're good at, we in fact are not. David Strayer is a professor of cognitive neuroscience in the Department of Psychology at the University of Utah. I bet most of the people who are listening to this think that they're good at multitasking. That's just the, that's the statistics. But the, uh, the evidence is actually really clearly the opposite. We are not good at multitasking. Our brains tend to just do one thing at a time, even though we have billions of neurons. In terms of our behavior, we're really just doing one thing and then one thing and switching back and forth. And that switching from one activity to another is, is very difficult to do. It's mentally demanding. There are a handful of people who, t- who tend to be much better at it than most. And uh, we kind of refer to those as super taskers. And we found out that, no, about 2% of the population are these extraordinary uh, people who can multitask like we all think we can. When we tried to study that systematically by looking at you know, what happens in the brain and, and, and uh, you know, looking at neuroimaging and EEG studies, you can clearly show the brain becomes kind of overloaded when we try and multitask and that um, we just don't do it as well. My head's full of work. Hi, I'm Jenny Brocky. Tonight on Inside, I'm a journalist at SBS TV. I'm also managing our household, wrangling our kids, they're two and five. We don't have any other family in Australia. My partner's frantic running his arts organisation. I still keep a busy social life. I love late nights out and hectic loud bars, drinking with friends. But after the accident, I can't do any of this. I can't multitask. You are putting uh, heavy demands on uh, the prefrontal cortex, uh, the frontal part of the brain, the most uh, uh, recent developments in terms of the primate's brain that are involved in things like planning and decision-making and problem-solving and working memory and executive decisions, kind of the 
kind of the, the thinking part of the brain in many respects, uh, but it's also the part of the brain that's coordinating multitasking. Uh, and when we see people who do uh, and constantly are kind of shifting back and forth between this task and the next over the course of a day, you see that the, those, those areas of the brain become very metabolically active and over time fatigued. Uh, and so if you think about that brain drain, at, at the end of a couple of hours of that, you're just kind of like, you're, 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 you're uh, kind of completely depleted. And so what we're seeing is the metabolic energy that's used by that frontal thinking part of the brain uh, is, is depleted. Um, and one of the best solutions that we found is to, okay, set that aside and go out and walk for a little bit. Uh, you don't then use those prefrontal regions of the brain to kind of try and multitask and you restore those areas and that's why we see these bursts of creativity after you've set a problem aside for a while you're you're letting the brain rest and come back to a more kind of reset does it matter where you walk probably so what we're seeing is that um, if you're would say walking in a busy urban area with lots of traffic and things you have to interact with, lots of man-made things that have a lots of you know, horns honking and so forth, that's probably not going to be so restorative. It may still have physical benefits in terms of helping the you know the the, the, the exercise part, um, but the best place to do it is in a park or if you can go on a hike in the bush or something like that where you can kind of get away from it all. Um, that tends to be more restorative. Over the last uh, decade, we've seen a really big change in how people live. They're much more tethered to their phones. What my question has been, and there's a number of researchers who are asking, what impact does that change in technology have in terms of uh, how we think, our, our, our social emotional part of the brain, our cognitive mental uh, thinking part of the brain, um, and, and kind of the stress levels. Before the accident... I liked a bit of gardening and camping and hiking, but it wasn't a big part of my life. I didn't own a hiking tent or backpack. I learned to meditate about six years ago, but I haven't done it in ages. I was pretty content with my jam-packed life, and I kept trying to cram more in. When I was knocked off my bike, a car was driving on the wrong side of the road. The doctor said it was lucky I was wearing a helmet. My head could be way worse. But at this point, the focus is on my shoulder injury. Ten days after the accident, I somehow catch a crowded bus in rush hour and walk towards RPA Hospital. I find the fracture clinic, and it's clear why the discharge doctor suggested arriving before it opened. It's chaos. There's no order to who's being called. The TV blares in the waiting room. I can't bear it. I try the corridor, but there are two women chatting. It's too much for my head. I retreat outdoors. I sit on a bench and just watch the rain in cars. This is maddening. I haven't learned yet to just sit and be. But I'll be forced to get better at this very soon when these days turn to weeks and then months. It's hours later when I see the shoulder surgeon. First I see his registrar. I record our consult on my phone because I've been struggling to remember stuff and I can't write because my shoulder's in a sling. My head's super foggy. Maybe it's from the endone I'm on for my shoulder pain 
Or is it the head injury? I can't concentrate on what people say to me. I'm really struggling to manage the treatment for my shoulder. So what I'll do now is I'll just have a look and see. Okay. So do you have any other medical problems? Um, I've just got the head injury at the yeah. moment. Yeah. And how's that? Do you have any nausea, vomiting still persisting from that? Or no, just um, I can't read or anything. I find like I find it really hard just sitting in the waiting room. Yeah. And who are you? Are you seeing anyone for that? No. No. Did the did the trauma team sort of sort you out with anyone to no. see? I'll try and tie you in with somebody then. But we move back to my shoulder because that's the focus. Might be even more severe than the x-ray looks. In fact, I can't really push it down. More severe, she said. Hmm. I'll get Dr Smithers in. The register goes off and returns with the surgeon, Dr Chris Smithers. The main issue for you, I think, will be discussing the pros and cons of surgery. Okay. We do occasionally operate on grade threes. Okay. But, uh, and and that's more commonly in um, patients who do a lot of overhead activity. The surgeon's right. The follow-up x-ray shows a grade 3 dislocation. My collarbone is completely separated from my shoulder blade. It's not really clear-cut. It's not jumping out to me and saying that this definitely needs surgery. Okay, It's not saying that. Okay. He patiently explains Um, that it's borderline whether we need to operate. Part of it's cosmetic. If I can cope with a permanent lump, would he bother? The surgeon pauses. He says he's the same age as me and wouldn't operate if it was his shoulder. I appreciate his frankness. This is information I can follow. It's the book week parade at Billy's school. She chooses Charlotte's web. I glimpse her parading around in her spider's costume that Miles made out of old tights stuffed with newspaper. But I'm overwhelmed by the noises and commotion of the school playground. It hits me like a brick. It's the same when I do the school pick-up or drop-off. I feel scared. Basketballs, handballs, kids running and screeching. Well-meaning parents trying to talk to me. People caring, asking how I am. Can they help? There was just a completely reduced capacity to concentrate and engage and as much as you tried to hold conversations you obviously reached a limit very very quickly of how much you could listen. Flicking through my diary opening it to the date of the accident it makes my chest tighten. I go rigid. There it is the 8am exercise class I never made it to. Miles take kids to climbing gym, 12.30 to 4.30, Billy to Sophie's party, 5pm, Dahlia and Miriam for early dinner. The next day, family morning walk or bike ride, Bunnings for garden stuff, 2 to 4, Billy to Zara's gymnastics party. Then, my diary's blank. I'm forced to do nothing. Until five days later, in my awkward left-hand scrawl, I write, 10am, doctor. A week later, my diary's filled with friends rostering themselves on to help me around the house and with the kids. Miles often works late. I'm blessed to have an army of supporters who feed us, do our laundry, entertain us and keep us sane. One person on this roster was my friend Sarah MacDonald. We met a few years ago when we were new mothers. 
could see it in your face and in your expression and in your body that you were wanting to be able to engage as you would expect yourself to, but you were very clearly unwell. Just you needed small amounts of stimulation before you were, you know, just you, you just would look very drained like someone who'd been, you know, concentrating heavily on something for a very long time. When I tell Sarah Mack that I'm making this podcast, she suggests I record a conversation with her to get her perspective on what I was like. It was such a layered experience, I think, for you, that it wasn't just that you were physically depleted, but there was so much else going on in terms of doctors not being sure as to how to respond to the injury and your symptoms and then, you know, the emotional aspects of not working and what that meant. I think what that meant for you was very significant. Sarah Mack looked after me and my youngest daughter, Emerald. She'd pick us up from the light rail station near her house so we could come and hang out, drink cups of tea and eat her yummy food. I don't quite know how you handled it <laughs> so gracefully, to be honest, because I don't think I would have I would have felt so locked in by that experience. And I know that you did feel at certain points um, that, but you also took opportunities to kind of make yourself well and and try different things. That's good to hear because sometimes I feel like maybe I was people saw me as a victim that I was that I was kind of just because it went on for so long and I'd get a bit better and then I'd go back again and and I I kind of also had this fear that and I think I still do a little bit that people didn't quite believe me or understand you know that there wasn't mm. that there was an element of like really because it was such an invisible injury I think you were very good at just kind of getting stuck in there and not getting weirded out by the fact that I was being weird, It's the end of my second week off work. All I can do is sit out in the backyard and stare at the trees. I'm also drugged up on endone for my shoulder. It's an opiate, a really strong painkiller. But my head's getting worse, not better. This is scary. What's happening? No one can tell me. My GP hopes it's still the endone making me fuzzy. But now I can't even read the school newsletter or picture books to my daughter. It's two weeks after I was knocked off my bike and I'm really struggling to be around my boisterous kids. I record a voice memo after seeing my GP so I can remember what she said. I stand in the street shouting into my phone. Dr Jenny Tai, Tuesday, September the first re headaches and head injury she said to just totally rest for a week don't read anything text email just give it a total rest she's not too concerned because the headaches are I gave them a 5 out of 10 in terms of um, strength Um, and she said you can get low level headaches for a few months from mild concussion However, she wants to reassess me in one week. So I need to make an appointment for next Tuesday. Basically, I've got a bruising on the brain and it it will be 
it will be sore and that um, yeah she wasn't concerned that it had got worse in the last week um, she said that can be sort of a build up as well and also written a letter for the police for me to take to the police so they can charge the driver I think that's all thanks My friend Dahlia invites me to take a break in her quiet apartment at Bondi Beach for the weekend. You were at the time having trouble being around a lot of noise and a lot of people talking. I make a discovery. It soothes my head. The headaches are gone. I can think clearly. The fog is lifting. I thought you actually got better, even though it wasn't very long that you were here. Um, you seemed to have fewer headaches while you were here. And it was just amazing because you would sit and watch the waves for hours. And that was something that most people just don't have the time or the interest in doing. And then after that, you would feel really good. And I think that was something surprising for me that it would be so quick we took a lot of walks along the beach and you would sit and watch the waves look at the water and just um, be calm near them later i chatted to dahlia in her bondi home my name is dahlia nassar i'm a friend of yours we've been friends for about 10 years and my professional title is Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Sydney. The waves are constant. They don't make any demands on my brain. I don't need to decipher them. I can just let them wash over my head. You were very fragile. You were, I think, a little scared of people, of sounds, of what they can do to you. You were really... Uh, trying to piece things together but having a hard time. You had a lot of headaches. Everything seemed like an enormous task. You couldn't read. You couldn't watch TV. So things had to be done very slowly and in a very quiet way. I'm super sensitive to conversations around me on the beach. My headache comes back after watching Bondi poses doing too much exercise, some of them even in bikinis. They interrupt my tranquility. You're actually a philosopher of nature, if I can call you that. You can call me a philosopher of nature. Someone actually called me a philosopher of forests or the trees or something like that. I, I don't think that's as true because I'm not only interested in forests. <laughs> Why do you think that staring out at the ocean that weekend helped my brain? The first thing that comes to mind is the importance of our experience of beauty and sublimity in nature. I think it's very few people out there who would deny that um, we really do find something beautiful about nature. And that experience of beauty is a calming experience. It can be also exalting, like it really inspires a lot of excitement. But I think in some ways that experience of beauty makes us uh, feel at home in nature, that there's something about 
our capacities to experience beauty that cohere with nature. There's some kind of harmony between ourselves and nature. And that is, you could say, what we would call an experience of beauty in nature. One of the philosophers that I've worked on, Immanuel Kant, worries about people who don't experience nature precisely because it's such an essential experience, the experience of natural beauty and natural sublimity for our sense of our self and um, our sense of connection to the natural world. Um, so he thinks, imagine people who aren't able to experience nature. What would that be like for them? And for him, who was writing in 1790, that was an impossible thought, but he still ventured it. And today we can definitely think, yeah, actually, that's quite possible. In fact, most people aren't experiencing nature most of the time. What did Immanuel Kant think might happen if humans were deprived of nature? That we would no longer have a sense of uh, connection to the natural world. The fact that our cognitive capacities so well map onto the natural world such that we experience beauty gives us a sense, oh, we're not just here randomly. The other experience that he talks about is the experience of the sublime, which for Kant is an experience of excitement and fear. I think ultimately in both cases, we'd be missing out on essential characteristics of human nature. Kant says something that I think is super interesting in relation to this. He says, angels can't experience beauty. Animals can't experience beauty. Only humans can. And why is that? Because to experience beauty, we have to have certain cognitive capacities. We have to have sensibility, we have to have imagination, and we have to have understanding. And it's the way that these sensibility, imagination, and understanding work together that gives us the feeling, the experience of pleasure in beautiful things. So I think we'd be missing out on being human in some ways. What was I like to hang out with like when we came back to your apartment and stuff? It was very relaxing, actually, because you were an easy guest in some ways. You needed lots of times to yourself. So I remember you feeling less headachy, less fatigued, just calmer, more centered in yourself um, pretty quickly after um, taking those walks. I still don't make any connection between the power of the ocean to help my head the refuge I found in my garden, and the concept of nature as a healer. The doctor asks me to keep a record of my headaches, but I struggle to write, so I start recording voice memos on my phone. Yesterday, I got a headache just with the morning um, stress of trying to get kids out the door, etc., and then I was okay but then later on got a headache after uh, writing one text message Billy turned six a few weeks after I was knocked off my bike later we talked about her memories of that time but just if you start playing with the pen, it will make a pick. The microphone's very sensitive, so any noises you make, like picking a pen or clicking your legs, will pick up on the microphone. What do you remember about the time that Mummy was recovering and that I wasn't working? Um, 
I think you went on a lot of bushwalks. You didn't read much. Yeah, um, I remember you, like, asking me to, like, be quiet because, like, you had, you kept getting headaches as well because, yeah. Uh, can you remember how you felt while Mummy was recovering? Um, well, sometimes I felt a bit lonely because you always kept going on bushwalks and you also kept having rests. And um, also Emerald was... Was everyone still having sleep during the daytime back then? She was, but I found it quite hard to get her to go to sleep because I was supposed to take her in a stroller for a walk around the block and I couldn't push the stroller, so I think she stopped having them. Yeah, because um, yeah, my sister Emerald was quite little. Um, I didn't play with her much, so I felt quite lonely as well. Oh, that makes me feel really sad to hear you say that. I'm sorry, Billy. Like, did it feel like a long time and did, were you worried that I might not get better? Well, I knew you'd get better, but it did feel like a long time, but it was like 18 months and that's a year and more than half. It's Billy's birthday party. The invites went out last month, before the accident. A bunch of kids and their parents are descending on our house. I can't cancel. Birthdays are such a big deal for kids. Billy's already had enough upheaval since my crash. So my parents fly over from New Zealand to help. It's an African-themed party. Billy gets her African heritage from Miles. He and my mother create an impressive cake with zebras and tigers climbing up mountains of icing. When we made the invites, I imagined a spring party in our enormous backyard. But it rains. We're stuck in our small house, squashed into the living room. Parents and kids and siblings hunker into corners. Super noisy. Pin the tail on the elephant brings a few to tears. I'm almost in tears. Then the rain stops. We run into the garden. My head finally starts to clear. I feel calm being outside. saw Dr. Jenny Tai. Uh, She was a bit concerned that I'm getting headaches after being asleep and also just when I'm resting, when I haven't been around any stimulation. Um, She did also say that the endone could also be causing some of those headaches. So, And I also wanted to come off the endone anyway, but she said it's important to do it slowly. Hi, great-grandma. It's Sarah. Um, I'm sending you a voice email because... I'm not able to send, do emails and uh, things at the moment with my headaches. Uh, I'm just having to take a break from all that. But wanted to say thank you so, so, so much for the colouring in books and necklaces for Billy. They arrived yesterday and she's thrilled. I'm not even sending text messages at the moment. It's so like one word. I think I'm getting there. It's just the head stuff, which is um, taking a little bit of a backward step. But I think... Nothing to worry about yet. It's four weeks after the accident. I'm easing off the endome, but I'm still feeling tired and foggy. Damn, it's starting to dawn on me. 
my brain isn't right. When I left the hospital after the accident, the doctor gave me an A4 page of instructions. By four weeks, my head should be fine, it says. Just like that. If symptoms persist, please seek help. I've reached the end of the four weeks and I feel like I'm getting worse. My GP wants to bring in more experts. Eventually, I score a cancellation appointment with a neurologist. I catch two trains to Bondi Junction. I feel nervous and excited. It's a relief to finally be getting some answers. Soon I should know what's wrong. I thought this would all be over by now. I keep telling work I'll return in a couple of weeks. I'm back in another waiting room. I sit for an eternity. Well, half an hour feels a lot longer when you can't distract yourself by reading. I eye out the magazines longingly. At least there's no TV. I'm anxious. Is he going to tell me I'll be stuck in this fuzzy headspace? Finally, Dr Ron Granite shakes my hand and welcomes me into his rooms. I'm blowing in through every Nowhere to land, brushing Brain on Nature was created, written, and produced by me, Sarah Allerley. Olivia Rosenman was co-producer. Ariana Martinez did the sound design and mix. Jonathan Zanti made this fabulous title track. Other music by Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to everyone I interviewed while researching the series. Head to brainonnature.com for more stories and science.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 